So we're gradually exploring some of the key features of the sadhana. Terrible habit of waiting for a translation. Um, <laughs> in my mind, I'm waiting for somebody to say something. Maybe you could translate into it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so where was I? Uh, yes, we're gradually uh, exploring at least some of the key themes in the... Uh, in the sadhana, oh, it's so much easier with translation because you can think while uh, the translation is happening. Yesterday we looked at uh, a reverence, which covers renunciation, reverence itself, and uh, going for refuge, commitment, sort of related concepts. And of course, uh, they relate to the first stage of the system of meditation. Um, uh, What's her name? Vijayamala reminded me that that's the, the, the system of meditation is represented by this way of practicing the sadhana. So uh, the prostration practice represents the stage of integration because in order to go for refuge, you need to be integrated. You need to commit yourself. You need to be capable of committing yourself. So all your energies need to be focusable, if that's a word. Um, then, of course, and, uh, what ensues on that is the stage of positive emotion or skillful intention. I prefer to call it because emotion is a, a, a fuzzy word in English. Um, and uh, we've been looking at that in terms of uh, Maitri so far. Then, of course, comes the six element practice, which represents the stage of spiritual death. And uh, then the stage of re spiritual rebirth is represented by the, the sadhana itself. In the sadhana, the samadhi represents a quite high stage, or at least in aspiration, of, um, uh, the, the, um, of just sitting, what Bhante calls just sitting, what we uh, call spiritual receptivity. Uh, it represents that at a very high level if we really do it properly, if we really experience the sadhana. So we'll be looking at that a bit later. Um, but uh, just sitting, Bhante says, should accompany each of the stages. So properly speaking, we should be doing even more meditation. And each session should be accompanied by a just sitting. I hope everybody's doing something of just sitting or just walking around or whatever afterwards, I see people doing that. So the, the practice covers these, uh, these five stages, these five elements of the, the system of meditation. And that's one of its most important features, really, uh, which uh, makes it such a gift to us because in a single sitting of an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half, however long you like to do it, uh, all of that is represented Today I come to the, uh, the stage of uh, positive emotion, which especially in the sadhana is spoken of in terms of compassion. Right at the beginning, you remember, we've got developing sadhana, which it doesn't mean not going for refuge, unfortunately. It means uh, a renunciation. And mahakaruna, great compassion. Great compassion in the sense that it's conjoined with shunyata. Um, then all the way through, well, for instance, uh, the opening verses, I and all else that moves. Um, and then later, in order to gain perfect Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. 
And then we practice uh, the, the Manjushri Stuti Sadhana. Um, so that, that that theme is carried on in, in, in that sort of way. Our own practice carries everybody else with it. I'll say more about this in a while. In the practice itself, uh, Manju Gosha himself is presented as supremely compassionate. Uh, to thee who in kindness as though to an only son, to all living beings. Of course, picking up a theme that we find especially represented in the uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta. Um, of course, it's culturally determined. We, we, we understand what it means in, in a more modern context. Uh, but um, this theme of the, the feeling that a mother has for their child, their only child, uh, it is presumably, I can uh, only sympathize, I have never experienced it, but must be very, very intense indeed. It's very strong bonding. So that's used as a metaphor for the kind of feeling that metta is, but for everybody, uh, at least in principle, for everybody who comes into its field. So this, this theme is very strong in the sadhana, and uh, um, we've been working it out in terms of metta, I'm hoping at some point that we'll add the bodhicitta practice instead of the, the, the metta practice, but we're going to ask you some questions at the end to see whether you're happy to take on a bit more. You don't want to uh, go at too fast a pace which just loses connection, but we'll ask uh, in, the, in the groups. Uh, so I need to explore a little bit this, this general theme that's uh, uh, suggested by the, the, the elements that I've outlined. I, I want to talk about it not in terms of compassion, because I think compassion itself is a, a slippery word and is too often sentimentalized. And uh, it's not a sentiment. It's quite interesting. This is why I choose to, trans uh, to talk of the stage of... Uh, uh, skillful intention rather than a positive emotion because compassion in a sense is not a feeling it's not an emotion it is if I'm correct and uh, I've got half an eye on Sagramati there it's it's a karma uh, the Buddha says this of metta in the in the Dhammapada uh, 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 he talks about developing metta this kushala kamma kusala kamma uh, and it must be the same for, for karuna. It's a, it's a karma, it's a volition, not a feeling. Of course, in English, feeling, emotion, covers Vedana and samskara. But uh, more often people think of it in terms of um, uh, feeling, nice feeling. It, we have a terrible problem with this in, in India, which is worth you being aware of. Bhavana, as in Maitri Bhavana or Karuna Bhavana, in modern Indian languages, bhavana means emotion, feeling. Uh, so you ask somebody, apko bhavana kya hai? What are you feeling? Um, how do you feel? Um, so when people hear uh, we're going to do the maitri bhavana, what they hear is we're going to be developing nice feelings. And then they wonder why they don't. Um, but the odd thing is, you can f be feeling really bad, you know, not very happy, and be feeling metta. Remember uh, Bhante's rejoinder to uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who, who, who was asked what the most important thing in 
Buddhism was, and uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said it was, was to be happy. And Bhante said, well, with respect, you can't be happy all the time, and indeed, it seemed to me that you weren't entirely happy um, just now. Nobody could be happy all the time. The system would break, but you can be friendly. So that makes the point. Uh, you, can, you can always have a skillful karma. You can't always have a, a pleasant Vedana. Um, Buddhism makes this point very, very clear. So, compassion is often, I think, sentimentalized. I remember reading to Bhante from Porfiri's life of Plotinus. Um, when he was first lost his ability to read, he, he got us to come up and read things to him. And sometimes we were reading the most interesting things to him. Uh, and uh, I found it, I have read it before, but in reading it to him, I was much more alive to what was being said about Plotinus. And one of the points that uh, Porphyry makes, at least in the translation that I read, is that Plotinus is a great um, uh, um, Egyptian Greek uh, philosopher who taught in Rome, the founder of the Neoplatonic school, a, a follower of Plato, but in the, uh, what I don't know his, his dates, but it must be second or third century. Hmm? Third century. Um, he, said, um, he said of Plotinus that he was completely without pity um, and uh, that uh, he displayed no pity and um, then, it, 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 a little later in the, in, in the passage, he described how one of Plotinus's disciples had died and Plotinus had adopted uh, his children and taken his wife into his household. So he wasn't, he wasn't a man who displayed sentiment. He wasn't a man who displayed pity, but he saw where his duty lay. Uh, and he, he, he immediately, and without uh, demur, without hesitation, uh, just followed his, his, his duty of care to his own disciples. So that is what we mean by compassion, I think, not the, uh, uh, the, the very emotional uh, form. Sometimes uh, compassion can uh, uh, take the form of, of, well, of um, people acting apparently quite coldly, if you see what I mean. They don't display a lot of warmth in doing it. They just do what needs to be done. So, what I've preferred to, to think about and to uh, unpack is uh, the nearest term I can think that covers the broad range I want to talk about, which is solidarity. I know solidarity has a meaning within uh, uh, modern uh, leftist discourse. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, I'm not referring to that, um, as it were, in its original context, although I think there is something in that political use that is not to be entirely dismissed. But I don't mean that. Um, what I do mean, I hope will emerge as I go along. Uh, it's a, a sense of uh, immediate connection of identity uh, and of sympathy or empathy. So uh, let's start right at the top, so to speak. Um, the Mahakaruna that uh, Manjugoshi himself 
embodies. That's what he is. He's the embodiment of solidarity at the highest possible level. Maha solidarity. Um, if you see what I mean. A transcendental solidarity. Uh, and uh, in reflecting on this, I thought that I could follow the Bhante's act with the Garava Sutta and uh, show an instance where we get a glimpse of the Buddha's compassion in a similar sort of way. And uh, uh, it, it's uh, actually, interestingly, from the same period, even maybe within days of the incident that is uh, um, described in the Garava Sutta, under that same tree, according to tradition, the Ajapala uh, Nigroda, the, uh, the goat herd's banyan tree, which, if you know Bodhgaya, is uh, marked by a, a, an Ashokan pillar, the stump of an Ashokan pillar, at the bottom of the long steps that lead down to the level of the uh, Mahabodhi temple. There's a pillar there which marks the spot where these two uh, uh, suttas originated and one or two more as well, which are also very interesting. Quite an important spot. Um, we always salute it when we're in India because it's the point where the Buddha really declared the Dhamma revolution, where he challenged the hierarchical Brahminical order. But that's another story, although that itself express, expresses his solidarity. Um, but on, on this occasion, um, the Buddha is uh, uh, reflecting on who he can communicate his, uh, his realization to. But the, it's found in a number of places, but it's found particularly in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, uh, where there's an account of what happened uh, to the Buddha at Bodhgaya, Uruvela. Uh, if there are others in the Uruvela um, Samyutta, I think. But in this incident, um, he's reflecting, who can I communicate this to? And he, he says, um, nobody. There's nobody I can communicate it to. And uh, it's worth just remembering what he said. Um, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, beyond the reach of reason, atakavachara, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in attachment, takes delight in attachment, rejoices in attachment. It's interesting, the word that, or one of the words that's used here in the, in the, re, the repeated refrain is alaya. And it's uh, one of the, the first instances of the use of that word. Here it's used in the sense of attachment, the basis of attachment, which is quite interesting for later Yogacara and so forth. Uh, it perhaps uh, points us to what particularly the early Yogacharans meant. But anyway, it goes on. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely um, a conditioned arising, dependent origination. But it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all um, um, samskaras, the relinquishing of all uh, clingings, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to teach the Dharma, others would not understand me. And that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Um, so it goes on. Um, so the Buddha uh, says, it can't be done. 
nobody will understand me. What I say will just not get across. And then, of course, Brahma Sahampati comes again and says, well, actually, beings are at different stages of evolution, to cut a long story short. And there's the, the, the image of the lotus pond with uh, some of the lotuses deep in the mud, some pushing up, some clear of the water as buds, and some just a little bit open. Uh, so the Buddha then realizes that uh, people are in different stages of openness, and some are open enough to understand what, he, what he's got to say. Uh, and thereupon he decides uh, to open the doors of the deathless. Uh, a lot in this, in this passage that we could explore, but I'm going to focus on what's pertinent. So here we have um, uh, what Bhante calls a little glimpse of the Buddha's mind. We're getting a little insight into what the Buddha, how the Buddha works, how he sees things, uh, which is not to be taken absolutely literally, I think. Uh, so the Buddha describes it in terms that are familiar to us. The Buddha feeling a disinclination to teach. And then the Buddha having a recognition that beings are in different stages and it's possible to teach. I don't think this can be taken absolutely literally. Um, it's clearly a, a, a way of the Buddha communicating to us what he experienced. There are two things I want to draw out of this. The first of these is, if you like, what's not really quite spoken here, but it's the, the Buddha's inclination to teach. Do you see what I mean? It's not discussed. He just says, I can't do it, which sort of implies that he wants to. Um, uh, it, it, he doesn't think about it. He just wants to do it. It's of his nature to communicate that insight. That's what compassion is, in my understanding. Uh, compassion is uh, of the nature of the Buddha's mind. It's not something that he feels. It's part of the way he sees things. The Buddha feels an immediate sense of solidarity with all life uh, and uh, uh, wishes to communicate what he has experienced that has liberated him from suffering, which he knows will liberate others. That's what compassion means. Uh, it's integral to the insight. It's integral to the state of mind. The immediate urge to help, and to help in the way that really helps, uh, with the real way you help other beings, is by helping them to become free. Uh, if you do anything else, it's to help them so that they can be helped to become free, if you see what I mean. And I think this is something that we need to bear in mind as an order. Our central duty is to help others to become free, of course, whilst ourselves making that effort. Uh, and if we do anything, it should always be relatable to that effort to help others to become free. Uh, the other element of this that I'm going to draw out is not quite so uh, central to our theme of compassion and solidarity, but it is important. It is the Buddha's realization in the, in the drama of the, uh, of the sutta through the prompting from a Brahma Sahampati 
that people are at different stages of development. And uh, uh, this is a, an absolutely key part of Bante's, I think, distinctive emphasis uh, that uh, uh, we need to recognize something that's intermediate between uh, complete ignorance and immersion in the world and complete freedom. We need to, to recognize these steps and stages just so often missing, especially, I think, in, in a lot of the discourse of secular insight and even secular mindfulness. By the way, when I say secular mindfulness, I don't necessarily mean what they teach at Breathworks and, and so forth. Do you see what I mean? Because that's in a context. But I mean where it becomes detached from that, the larger context, the larger framework. Uh, it, it, uh, but um, there's a, a tendency, I think, to see things in terms of an immediate gap between the enlightened and the unenlightened with no intermediate steps between them. And uh, what our order represents, I think above all, is the exploration of these intermediaries in all sorts of spheres, in all sorts of, of dimensions, and the exploration of them in our own lives and the encouragement of opening up those paths in, 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 uh, in the lives of others. Abante is often spoken of art as the intermediary. Uh, of course, it's not the only one. He's spoken of the Bodhisattva as the intermediary, as what stands between the unenlightened and the enlightened and helps to link the two. So I think that uh, that's a very important uh, little glimpse in that first uh, discussion of teaching in the, in the Buddhist life. But back to compassion or back to the Buddha's desire to teach, this absolute immediate sense of solidarity with all life. You can analyze that very obviously in terms of the Buddha's uh, um, um, overcoming of self-clinging. Uh, when he conquers Mara, when he uh, rids himself of craving, he rids himself of selfish uh, orientation, of uh, uh, orienting the whole world around I, interpreting the whole world in terms of I. So it opens him, him up to what is around him uh, without any um, prejudice, without any um, uh, a selfish perspective. He just sees what's around him. And... Uh, of course, what he sees around him are beings who don't really understand, who don't really see what's going on. We're going to explore this when we come to the bodhicitta practice because we try to recognize this too. We try to, to gain this sort of understanding. We kind of try to open ourselves up to uh, the, uh, the obvious fact that people are, in their effort to gain happiness making themselves miserable. And not only making themselves miserable, but making each other miserable. Uh, out of their failure to really understand what is, uh, they fail to do what is in their own best interests and what is in the best interests of others. So to the Buddha, this is just obvious. He just opens his eyes and encounters a human being, and he can see it. Uh, act of imagination. All those beings he's ever met are present in him when he's enlightened. Everybody we've ever met is part of us now. 
And so he's vividly aware of their unenlightenment, of their failure uh, to see things as they are, of their delusion, and therefore their suffering. Or of their suffering, and therefore their delusion. And uh, seeing that as... Uh, without any effort, as completely spontaneous, unmediated, direct experience, seeing that, he immediately, as an immediate, spontaneous uh, 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 urge, if you can speak of a Buddha having urges, as whatever is the equivalent of an urge in a Buddha, he, 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 he wants to do something about it. He tries to do something about it. He moves to do something about it. Uh, in the drama of the, of the sutta, he, he has to work out how he can do that. And, and Bhante uh, describes those suttas that are connected with his early period at, at Uruvela, at, uh, at Bodhgaya, as the Buddha working out the full implications of what he'd seen under the Bodhi tree. Conquered mara, conquered craving, conquered that essential, fundamental selfish uh, nexus, which is a mixture of view and powerful uh, affect. He, he conquered it, completely conquered it. What's it mean, having done that? What, what, what's, uh, what are the implications of it? He's still a human being. He's still got to move and live and have his being. So he's got to sort of work it all out. And you see him moving around the campus at Bodhgaya, at least in the mythic um, uh, uh, geography of Bodhgaya. Um, you know, he moves here and there, goes and understands conditionality, etc., etc. Um, he's trying to sort of put it all in place. Uh, something's happened to him. He's got no guide for. It's never happened before. He says this, doesn't he? Uh, 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 these, this has never been seen before. And he's trying to work it all out. He's got no guides. So he has to work out how to follow through the implications of his immediate recognition of the uh, unnecessary suffering that people uh, labour under, burdened by, uh, and uh, uh, he has to work out as a, uh, how, to, how to help them, how to help them get out of it. But the whole thing, one imagines, is, is here expressed in you know, a sort of mythic story, when Brahma Sahamti comes into it, I think what you're being told is that there's something going on on another level, on a kind of uh, mythic uh, dimension, which is not really quite like that. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a couple of days' time if we get there. Um, the, the, the mythic represents what cannot be expressed in the historic dimension. So uh, in the myth of Brahma Sahamti's appearance, Something is expressed about the Buddha's process, as we say nowadays, uh, which is not exactly like that, but that is best expressed in that way. He's working it out. Uh, but the working out is spontaneous, uh, completely natural, native to him. It, it has to happen. Again, Brahma Sahampati says, well done, that's what all the Buddhas of the past have done, uh, which is another way of saying that what's going on is... Uh, uh, is something that is eternal, not merely uh, temporal. Uh, it's something eternal that's linking with time. So, uh, 
that is transcendental solidarity, if you see what I mean. I, th I think it, it becomes very clear. The Buddha feels solidarity with all life as a natural uh, aspect of his awareness. Solidarity is part of his awareness, to put it like that. So he, he cannot but respond. Uh, seeing he has to function. Um, I said a bit like walking across a room and you see um, a, 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 a piece of broken glass in the middle of the room. So you don't think about it. You don't think, oh, if I leave that there, somebody may tread on it and cut their foot. You just pick it up and throw it away. So it's, that is what is meant, that sort of immediate, uh, natural responsiveness uh, to help people to find freedom. And uh, the whole Buddhist tradition, of course, comes out of that. So Manjugosha represents that solidarity. When we are in connection with him, we're in connection with that transcendental solidarity. You could call it bodhicitta, uh, quite a good word for it. Because after all, what does bodhicitta mean, literally, uh, apart from all the later doctrine? It means the mind of enlightenment, the mind of awakening. So to my mind, bodhicitta entered this world when the Buddha gained enlightenment. And when we try to raise the bodhicitta, what we're trying to do is connect with the Buddha's mind so that we catch it, as it were, so that it ignites in us. So that Manjugosha embodies the bodhicitta, he embodies the Buddha mind, the, the awakened mind, and it, we're focusing here on its aspect of solidarity. Um, so we're, when we, we uh, imagine uh, Manjugosha, we're trying to imagine him as the embodiment of this, this kind of solidarity which is very strongly expressed in the stuti uh, and which is expressed in the preliminary verses. So that's solidarity of the highest kind. Uh, that's compassion of the highest kind, uh, which we are trying to relate to. My own belief is that similarly to reverence, if you cannot relate to this kind of solidarity, any kind of solidarity on lower levels easily becomes sentimentality, easily, easily becomes egoistic. Uh, you think, I am being compassionate, uh, or you justify your own rage by compassion. It's a, the, the problem of the, the uh, many an activist, Monasehek has a lot to say about that. Um, you justify your own unhappiness by compassion. But uh, real compassion is uh, something that is native to the mind. It's natural to the mind. When you open up to the world around us, you naturally want to respond. So that's compassion at the highest level, which I believe uh, our reflection upon, our, our connection with, helps us to work out at lower levels, if you see what I mean. If we can work it out by relation to uh, Manjugosha, then when we, try to, when we come to 
act in the world, uh, we call upon that compassion, not our compassion, if you see what I mean. So it relieves us of the egoism of compassion, of which there is plenty in the, in the activist world. Uh, compassion becomes uh, a sort of egoistic assertion. Uh, at least something's done, I suppose, but often in doing, something is also undone. So uh, we are trying to develop a relationship with that kind of solidarity. We are trying to have solidarity with that kind of solidarity, if you see what I mean. Uh, and there's a very important theme in the, in the sadhana, uh, that we are identifying ourselves increasingly closely with Manjugosha. Um, uh, in, in all the language of our lotus of uh, kindness and, and wisdom yeah, achieves the rank of Manjugosha, or that sort of language. I'm not getting it exactly right, but you remember it comes up a couple of times. Um, uh, we are, through relating to solidarity on that level, awakening that sort of solidarity within us. Um, and in the practice itself, we're, um, we're for a little while, uh, participating in that. Uh, it's something that uh, I find recurs for me uh, uh, from time to time. I'm not always able to sustain it. But sometimes in doing the practice, uh, especially when I'm working in situations which, for some reason of fate, not design, I seem to have ended up connected to some um, uh, situations of great suffering, uh, not the whole of my life by any means, but in India and in, uh, in Hungary, more especially in Hungary and Slovakia, connected with some of the worst suffering I've ever seen. Um, uh, I, I find that I get the strength to have a positive relationship with that. I don't have to do much, by the way. I'm not pretending I do very much, but I have to have some relationship to it because I'm supporting people who do. Um, but uh, I find in the practice itself, I derive the strength to do that. Uh, I, because some of the situations I've seen in Hungary, in, in Slovakia more than in Hungary, uh, gypsies who are so marginalized that living two miles outside the main main village, which is basically not not the best of Europe, but not bad Europe, part of the European Union, uh, people living in decent houses with street lights and sewage and electricity and so forth, then two miles outside, 600 people, uh, 300 of whom are children, uh, living in uh, basically a rubbish heap uh, in uh, an old uh, mental hospital without doors without windows, no banisters on the, on the stairs, an open sewer running through the middle, occasionally the police coming in and beating all the men up. Uh, anyway, I won't go on. Uh, just dreadful. And, uh, well, of course, it makes you really angry. It makes you really angry that people allow this to happen. The people in the village, they know about it. But they've got their own story, which justifies it justifies them not doing anything about it. Um, we know all about it in India. <laughs> not so different in Orissa. Uh, uh, the area where he comes from is just the same sort of conditions. In a way, not so stark, 
uh, because the villagers, the Indian villagers, are actually high caste villagers, are not in much better conditions themselves, but they have the freedom that the people uh, don't have. Uh, but in, in, in Slovakia, in much of, of Central Europe, uh, the situation of gypsies is just appalling. And uh, when you're in that situation, it's hard not to just feel a, a sort of rage against the system, a rage against the people who allow this. And um, uh, I gave a talk in Slovakia. I didn't really mean to get into all of this, but anyway. Uh, I gave a talk in Slovakia at a political meeting. I was invited to speak because they were trying to get the, the gypsies vote. And I was saying, look, I, I, in India, I've seen that it doesn't have to be like this. If you help people, if you give them education, if you give them a sense of responsibility, if you give them a basic leg up, but leave them to do it themselves, it doesn't have to be like this. People can lift themselves up. And I saw the candidate for the, for, for the mayor sitting there, folding his arms. Can't be done. They're just like that. So it's hard not to then feel rage and uh, despair, either sort of uh, a, a rage to, against those who, who allow it, or a sort of despair. What can you do? The great call of India, India. Uh, uh, what can I do? Um, this is the great sort of let out of India, actually of the world. So it's only by reference to Manjugosha that I can sometimes deal with those sort of situations. When I'm in contact with that level of solidarity as something not just thought about, but actually felt. Uh, at times, Manjugosha does for me really embody, embody, think of that word. Uh, his, his, he bodies forth, he manifests. His body is uh, the clothing of that, uh, that sense, not feeling, that sense, uh, that uh, immediate natural impulse. And uh, when I'm in contact with that, it sustains me, it strengthens me. It allows me to play my tiny little part, uh, which is basically my tiny part in trying to sustain those who are actually doing something about it. I'm not qualified to or capable of doing about it, uh, much about it, but I can help sustain those who can. At least that I can do. Uh, and help them to find a middle way between rage and despair, uh, which are the, 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 the fatal um, uh, diseases of the activist, uh, one who is genuinely socially aware. Um, and uh, for me, this is why, man, uh, what's his name, Ratnakumar's question that, uh, that I mentioned at the beginning on the first evening, you know, what has all this exploration of the sadhana got to do with you know, the social situation in India, the, you know, his brothers and sisters who live in appalling deprivation and, and uh, uh, systemic uh, uh, oppression. What's it got to do with them? That's what it's got to do with them. It gives them the power uh, to uh, uh, face that situation in a creative way. Hopefully, also, it'll give 
those who are part of the system that perpetuates it a glimpse of how it doesn't have to be like that. Um, so when we connect with compassion in that sort of way, or rather with solidarity in the form of Manjugosha, not just the abstract notion of bodhicitta, uh, if it is abstract uh, for you, which it may not be, but in an embodied form, uh, then you can sort of draw on the strength through your solidarity with Manjugosha and his solidarity with you. That's extremely important in the practice, isn't it? it at the beginning it says he appears in well-pleased fashion. I love that. Um, Manjugosha is pleased to be there. In fact, uh, sometimes what I think is he's sort of been tapping his fingers or sort of playing with his sword, just sort of waiting for us to tune in and sort of, you know, looking in his book and, <laughs> and sort of waiting. And, uh, you know, at last you're there. You know, like the story of Asanga uh, and um, Avalokiteshvara, you know, meditating on Avalokiteshvara for 12 years and um, <laughs> um, Avalokiteshvara doesn't appear. And then one day in a mood of that kind of spontaneous solidarity with a, a wounded dog, um, a, a, a sangha just acts uh, to relieve it of its suffering. And uh, suddenly it turns into Avalokiteshvara. And so a sangha sort of rather indignantly says, look, I've been doing your practice for 12 years. Why didn't you come? I've been dialing the number and no response. And Avalokiteshvara said, well, I was there all the time. You just didn't see me. And I think that, that makes a very profound uh, uh, point. So it, it's, it's not that Manjugosha has, um, you know, sort of toddled along because you've been calling him. It's that your calling him, your openness to him, makes it possible for you to see him. And it's said, isn't it, that the, the, the image appears like a sword drawn from a sheath, sort of all at once. We always build it up. But of course, uh, uh, Manjukosha isn't sort of sending his lotus and then his moon mat and then his legs and so forth. He's just sort of there because you've, 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 uh, you've opened up to him. And there he is. Uh, and uh, so your solidarity with him allows you to experience his solidarity with you, which is expressed in that lovely phrase that he appears in well-pleased fashion, because he, he, he wants to be with you. That's, that's his nature. Um, your, your, your lotus has been right deep in the mud, but for a little while through the practice, you've opened your bud a little bit, so he can, he can appear, he can communicate with you. But that, in a way, you could say, is what the preliminaries are all about. They're bringing your lotus up from the mud and just opening it a little bit so that Manjugosha can send the light rays of his compassion to you. So yes, the solidarity between you and Manjugosha, Manjugosha and you. Of course, there's another kind of solidarity, which is, uh, in a way, very mysterious uh, which is the solidarity expressed by the fact that in the opening to the sadhana, you aspire to do it 
with all sentient beings. A, a really striking, you know, you say, uh, uh, thereby, uh, uh, oh, although I can never quote the words when the time comes, but uh, you, you, you aspire to say the Brahma, Brahma Vihara verses, the verses that re- reflect the Brahma Viharas. Uh, it's we do it, not me do it, we do it. Um, of course, you know, that has the effect of lessening your sense of I, me being full of metta. But even more profoundly, uh, this, this uh, strong sense in us of solidarity with all life. Our sense that we are doing this practice with and for all beings. Uh, I personally try to, 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 don't even have to try much, but I keep a sense that all beings are around me while I'm practicing. It's not actually said, and maybe it's not the way it's usually done, but for me that very easily is on hand. The sense that everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing the practice. Somehow by my doing it, because of my solidarity to the extent that it's there, with all, everybody's doing it. I'm contributing to the sum total of of humanity through my practice. Uh, And uh, through what I'm doing, I'm putting one little tiny grain of sand on on the side of of humanity, on the side of, of, uh, of the progress of humanity, of the liberation of humanity. Uh, just one little grain uh, that, that I can contribute because of Manjugosha's solidarity with all beings, because of my solidarity with him, his solidarity with me, and my sense of my participation in not just humanity but all life, my sense that I share at a very deep level uh, life with life, um, quite literally. I share uh, a a solidarity with life. All life resonates with life at the the psychic level. I'm I'm firmly convinced of this. And um, so when I, through the power of Manjugosha and his solidarity with all life, summon up my tiny little bit of solidarity, uh, my tiny bit of, of compassion, it contributes to the sum total of the welfare of all beings. Um, And uh, in doing that, I'm really making my life meaningful. Uh, And uh, without that sense of that larger solidarity, all our practice in the end becomes egoistic. I think this is the the, the essential message of, uh, of this particular phase of the practice, this dimension of the practice. I think it's again one of Bhante's distinctive contributions, his, one of his reasons from the start, right from the start of the foundation of our movement he was very cautious about secular insight and uh, Vipassana um, as it was often taught in the West right, right in the early days, even before the movement started, part of his discourse right at the start of the movement took into account the way in which people took up a one-sided, maybe within the limits of that, effective, 
but one-sided and narrow kind of uh, approach to insight. She also connects with the mindfulness schools, which also can be very shallow and narrow, rather narrow. Even though they can be deep, they can be narrow. And what it means without that strong sense of solidarity vertically and horizontally, and a sense that that vertical uh, uh, um, solidarity connects you with solidarity in its supreme form, without that, all your practice is subtly egoistic. All of it subtly returns back to you. Uh, this, of course, then plays itself out in our ideal of Sangha. Not just our ideal of Sangha, our practice of Sangha, which is often far from ideal. But in trying to be a Sangha and trying to subordinate our own egoistic interests to the interests of the larger community, trying to contribute our strengths to the larger community and try to purify our weaknesses from the larger community, uh, among other things, we give ourselves a chance of self-transcendence. Without Sangha, I think it's uh, almost impossible for one's spiritual practice, one's Dhamma practice, not to be more or less subtly egoistic. This is why I'm personally so much against anything that smacks of the language of attainment. Because I think the language of attainment, unless you really have attained at the highest level, inevitably plays upon uh, uh, the sense of uh, um, uh, a self selfishness. Not that it's all bad, everything that goes in that category, but uh, I think the, the language of attainment is, is very difficult to... Uh, uh, it's very difficult to speak that language and avoid... Uh, self-infatuation uh, and also confuses others but that's another whole matter that's their problem um, so our, our practice of Sangha our trying to be an order and our doing what is necessary to uh, uh, continue the harmony and integrity of the order uh, which means in an intelligent and individual way um, uh, having uh, setting aside our merely egoistic interests um, for the, 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 the benefit of the larger community, we are trying to enact that solidarity, humanly speaking, and that order itself is supposed to embody the principle of uh, solidarity. Um, more broadly, if you see what I mean. Bhante talks of it as embodying the uh, thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. And what he means is that the order is an attempt to live out uh, that highest solidarity in community for the benefit of the whole world. So the, uh, the order, uh, I believe, for us is, is part of the intermediary for us to bring that solidarity into practice in the world. I've rather um, hastened over all that because time is, is against me, but I hope that I've at least sketched in some lines that could be amplified elsewhere. So you've got uh, in my schema then 
uh, these levels and kinds of solidarity, all of which are uh, very definitely related, they're internally related. You've got the solidarity of the highest kind, which is the solidarity that uh, the enlightened uh, experience and that Manjugosha for us embodies, which is the natural, spontaneous solidarity experienced by those who are no longer bound by ego clinging. Um, that's what compassion means. No craving, uh, no self-attachment. So natural responsiveness, but alertness, awareness, not cut off, not separate. Uh, then there's a solidarity that we form with that solidarity and that uh, we recognize in forming that solidarity with them, they're solid with us, if you see what I mean. We're connected to them. Then there's our solidarity with uh, all, all, living, all living beings, which is tuning into this quite natural psychic responsiveness of life for life, um, which is a, a very interesting topic which it would be good to explore but uh, just again touching on an, on a, on an area uh, so that solidarity is a basis for our practice and then there's our solidarity with uh, our fellow order members a special kind of solidarity because we share a common project a common identity as trying to embody this spirit of solidarity for others, of working together to bring that kind of solidarity into the world. So all these kinds of solidarity are supported, in my experience, in my life, by the solidarity that I experience in Manjugosha. Without uh, my... I was going to say deep, but that might be claiming too much. My, for me, deep experience of solidarity in, in Manjugosha and my, my sense, to the extent that it's there, of his solidarity with me and mine with him. Uh, solidarity in all other levels is sustained and purified of its egoistic um, tendencies, or at least pulled out of them at my best. And... Uh, reflected back at me when I'm at my worst. So I believe that this practice that we're doing is uh, of the utmost importance in this respect, that it is extremely important for us to draw this out more fully. So I hope that what I've said about all this is at least um, provocative for you, uh, helps you to relate to the practice more deeply, or you know brings out something that you haven't seen. I'm sure there are things that you've seen that I haven't. Uh, and uh, I hope that by us practicing it together, we affect each other. We will affect each other. Don't just hope it. We will affect each other. I already feel my own connection with Manjugosha supported by your connections with Manjugosha. And I feel our connection emerging more and more strongly. I'm, I'm really pleased that we've come together in this way uh, and uh, a very special experience for me. So thank you very much.